Hey, let me welcome you. I see a lot of new visitors here this morning. My name is Andy, and uh, I want to do a little quick recap on where we've been. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. You can put your finger there, and then we're also going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And uh, those are going to be the two passages that we look at to study this morning. But before we dive in, let's talk about a quick recap. Where have we been? What have we been doing for those of you who are new? We just wrapped up a series called Everything Sad Untrue. And this was a series in which we tried to show you that the Bible is more than an instruction manual for life or just a a bunch of good tips on how to live life. But instead, it's fundamentally, the Bible is fundamentally a story told in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. And so last week, Andrew talked about, closed that series by talking about restoration, this reality that Jesus is making all things new. And that that is both an already and not yet reality. That meaning that when Jesus came into the world for the first time, he brought with it a kingdom. He invaded the world and brought with it new hope and power because of his life, death, and resurrection. Christ is defeating death on the cross. And by doing that, he begins to point to a second coming in which according to Revelation 22, there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more death. And so this fully restored world is the promise of God for those who find their life and meaning in Him. That's what the point of the series was. And to illustrate that, to talk about this already and not yet reality that we live in, if you remember, Andrew talked about D-Day. He talked about June 7th, June 6th, 1944, where the Allied forces invaded the beaches at Normandy in France. And this was this tremendous battle that was fought by the Allied forces. The sacrifices that they made, there was a beachhead that was established in that day in enemy territory. And historians would point to that as this strategic death blow to the enemy's resources. That with that beachhead, that the war was over. That even though the fighting would go on for probably another year or so, that the war was essentially won on D-Day. And that's us today. That's the church of Jesus Christ, right in the middle of the world that is still filled with pain and heartache and sickness and sadness and strife. There is a death blow that God has dealt in Christ on the cross to death itself. And so there's this unstoppable mission of renewal that is on its way. And we're asking our question with this vision series tonight and with the story that we just told, have you found your place in that story? And that means asking questions like, if the kingdom of God were to land in Carrollton, Georgia, what would that look like for our community? What would it look like for the redemptive kudzu, is what Andrew called it, of the kingdom to begin spreading out through Carrollton, Georgia in terms of education and law and government and poverty, and broken marriages, and families, what would that look like if that actually happened? And so if you're like me, you might think, that is so big, that is so grand, not just in Carrollton, but in the world. What a huge and monumental task. How would somebody even begin to think about that happening in the world around them? You know, cultural transformation feels impossible, and yet Jesus gives us a key. 
In Matthew chapter 9, I want you to listen to this. It's not, in your, it's not on the screen. But Matthew chapter 9 says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And listen to this. What did he see? What did Jesus see? It says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Here's Jesus, not just considering the crowd of people in front of him in that little town, but all the towns and villages that he saw. Indeed, the needs of the whole world, the the physical and psychological needs and despair that he saw everywhere. Jesus sees this monumental task in front of him, and here's what it says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The workers are few. So ask that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers or laborers into the harvest field. So according to Jesus, the way that you would deal with tremendous needs in a broken world is through a mobilized and equipped set group of kingdom workers. And so we would ask, where would we ever find an army like that? And we get the answer in the very next verse, in chapter 10, because it says that's where Jesus sent out the 12. He sent out 12 people with the good news of the kingdom. Who were they? They were just the 12 people, the 12 men who had begun to follow him in his life work, in his mission. The few people who had been with him are now called to pray and to go. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus' mission is to think big, to start small, and to go deep. That's how you begin to pursue cultural transformation. And so what I want to talk about this morning are last words. The last words of Jesus and the last words of the Apostle Paul. Because last words are lasting words. I want you to think about maybe the last words that a loved one shared with you before they passed away. Do you remember them? How as you remember the last words someone shared with you, does that affect the way that you still remember and think about their life? In Matthew 28 and in 2 Timothy 2, we get last words. So let's start with Jesus' last words to the 11 disciples who remained after he was resurrected. It says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And then Paul's last words to his protege, Timothy, just weeks before he would be executed in Rome. Here's what Paul has to say. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive his share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Hey, let's pray together. You know, Father, as we look at those words, as we really think about what's being said there, 
I would imagine most of us would say, that's really good for somebody else. It's really good that Jesus and Paul would want some of their followers to do the same thing that they had just done. But I think that as we individually consider this, and as we consider this as a church, it just seems so crazy. It seems too impossible. It seems like there's too many barriers for, for that to really be a part of our lives, for the Great Commission, participating in the, the work of making disciples. I want to pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would invite us in again to that great mission. I want to pray that you would help us to see the power and the strength that are available to us in the grace of Christ. And I want to pray that you would set our hearts free as a church. God, that we would move towards this with uh, great passion and that we would overcome our fears and barriers. But only you can do that. Only you can do that. And you do it out of your love. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, because these are last words, I want you to consider what your last words would be. If you were going to leave a legacy behind, what would you want some of your last words to be? You don't say that because I'm trying to be morbid. Uh, instead, I want us to be sober-minded. You know, Moses said in Psalm 90:12 that we were, he prays, teach us to number our days, that we would have a heart of wisdom. So that means that God has created us for a reason. It means that sometimes we got to ask the question, what am I living for? What is my mission that God is calling me? What is my life all about? Because here's what I know about my heart, and here's what I know about everyone's heart, that living life is like driving a car that's out of alignment, and that if I take my hands off the steering wheel, we all have a nat natural tendency to gravitate towards a life that is safe and comfortable and self-serving, and that is incredibly good in the short run, but incredibly empty in the long run. And so if we are to be members of God's kingdom, what God is saying is that our lives have to be more about more than just us. To be a member of God's family means that we are to be a member of God's mission. Everybody loves being in, in the family, but mission is scary. To get outside of ourselves is incredibly rife with challenges and sacrifice and fears but that's okay, because real life, life that is beyond just simply existing, the life, the abundant life that God wants you to have is found in mission. It's when God's universal mission becomes our personal mission. It's when our life values begin to align with his kingdom values. When we say that, hey, whatever else my life is going to be about, whatever else I'm doing, I am going to be about spreading light where there is darkness and hope where there is heartache. And, and help where there's healing, and justice where there's injustice, because God's called us to a great mission, and life is found when we give ourselves to his plan. So how do we invest in eternal things? I want to show you three things in the passage this morning that we just read. Number one, the power for mission. Number two, the strategy for this mission. And number three, the cost of the mission. So let's start with the power for mission. Have you ever wondered what the hardest job in the world is? Mike Rowe, if you remember that show, he spent 10 years uh, highlighting this show called Dirty Jobs. 
And in it, he went around and he found the nastiest jobs. If you're, if you're like me, you saw that show and you were made thankful that though your job is sometimes really difficult, it could be a lot worse. That was dirty jobs. But you know what I think the, the harder job is? The hardest job in the world is making disciples. And that's what you and I have been called to do, to make disciples. I can remember asking Ralph Johnston. Ralph Johnston's a, a friend of mine, a pastor. And when I was transitioning from college ministry into pastoral ministry, I wanted to know what pastors did all day. What do these guys do other than preach on Sunday? So I said, Ralph, what is it that you do with your job? And he said, my job is to turn atheists into radical missionaries of grace. And my jaw kind of hit the floor. I was like, are you spending a lot of time with atheists? And he said, I'm not really, not really professing atheists, but atheists in practice. Atheists who live their lives, people who live their lives like atheists. And my call is to help them begin living like radical missionaries. And then he said, that's not just my calling, but it's your calling. And it's the calling of every person in the church of Jesus Christ. And so my question this morning is, how does anybody pull that off? Uh, where does the power come from, from something like that? And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we get the answer. Verse 1, Paul says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Strength for this mission, and it is impossible, is found in his grace. Our strength, the power supply when we walk into the ring of making disciples is a battle that doesn't come with a sword or leadership profiles or Enneagram scores or seminary experience or any of those things, books that we've read, but our power supply is found in the strength of Jesus Christ, the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. In chapter one, here's what Paul says to Timothy. This is before the verse we read. Paul gives Timothy a charge to be strong. Be strong. Fan into flame the gift of God, he says. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. Now, I want you to think about what he roots that call in. It's verse nine. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we get to chapter 2. He does the same thing. He challenges Timothy to be strong again. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he anchors that in verses 8 and 10. Uh, in verses 10, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. So here's Paul. And he's starting off with a challenge, a call to Timothy to be strong in Christ. And what I want you to see is that that is anchored in this already accomplished work of Christ, which means that we are to access this strong grace by looking back at all that Christ has accomplished for us in the past, seeing it, savoring it, beginning to think about the strength that it gives us for the future. And so when we look back at what he has done for us, we can see what? His love and his passion for his bride. We can see full forgiveness that every one of my sins has been accounted and paid for. 
He could see his death tearing open this veil that gives me access into the throne room of grace that I can pray every, any time I want, that I have that, the voice, the ear of the heavenly father and that his promises to be with me, uh, are, his promises are to be with me and to back me in his kingdom work. You know, when I think about this and how this plays out in my life, I would have you know that I'm a pastor and a husband and a father who is deeply filled with self-contempt. When I think about all of that God is calling me to, so often all I can think about is how I'm failing. And do you know that New Year's resolutions offer very little hope for me in that regard? Instead, here's what begins to happen. I look at the passion and the love of Jesus for his bride. And I think, I'm part of that. I'm his bride, and so are we. And I begin to think about all that he's done for me, his resolutions to me in Christ. And that's the only thing that begins to melt away self-contempt. When I see his love and his passion for me, that it's unwavering. That's the only thing that gets me over the hump, sets me free, and makes me think, I can do this. I can do this not because I'm looking at me, but because of what Christ has done for me. There's no other path to freedom. But this is the grace that, that Paul is championing Timothy to, to access, to hold on to, because it's the nuclear reactor. It's the only power source which enables us to have access to what would otherwise be ineffective and powerless ministry. You got to see the context here. If you think about it and remember this, Paul is in a Roman jail. He is just a couple days away from an appointment with an executioner's axe. And he is handing off the leadership baton to Timothy. Timothy would not be your choice. He is fearful. He is anxious. He is easily intimidated. Can you imagine trying to follow in the, in the footsteps of Paul? Paul is this omnicompetent thinker who on the one hand, can have this incredibly engaging conversation with a beggar on the street. And then in the same breath, he can debate with some of the greatest minds that the world has to offer in the Areopagus. This is Paul. And following him is young Timothy, who is terrified and scared and stutters. And he's not the person that the world would have looked at and thought, this is our guy. Timothy is a dead end. Okay? There's all these internal barriers for him, but there's also the external barriers in the church, factions and power plays within the church that were unsettling. And then there was these cultural barriers that he would have been up against. Think about this. We're just a short time away from it becoming public policy in the Roman Empire to execute people like Timothy with this kind of message. So there's this massive fear factor. There are barriers everywhere. And that forces us to ask the question, what are the barriers in my life? What would keep me from surrendering to this call that God has for mission in my life? What would it look like for me to move from living on my terms, my agenda, my goals, to moving more towards life on God's terms? You see, our first instinct is always, when we're challenged like this, to, to look at the barriers. And God is saying we need to become aware of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You realize to tell Timothy to be strong is like telling a snail to hurry up. It's like telling a horse to fly. To be able to say, Timothy, be strong, was actually impossible. And that's the whole point. 
Because whenever you step into the ring of life-on-life discipleship, and you might think all you see is barriers, all you think is in this place in life, that's where I feel the most incompetent. But actually, that's what Paul wants us to see. He wants us to come to him with our weakness. He wants us to come not as strong and dependent on ourselves, but looking outside of ourselves to him, to him. And so what the mission means is that we never start with us. We don't start by looking at us, what we bring to the table, what we have to offer in terms of our spiritual experiences and leadership profile. Those things can be really good. Those things can be really helpful. And yes, God uses them, but they are not the source of your strength. God alone is. And so what God expects from you, by his grace, he can accomplish in you. So what he's telling Timothy is that you have to get deeply in touch. Timothy, you have to get deeply in touch with the fact that you are undeservedly and yet unconditionally, absolutely and profoundly loved. Because he knew that if that ever got into his heart and in his mind, then Timothy would never shut up. He wouldn't because there's no stronger motivator than love. And so if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to realize that being a part of a mission like this to make disciples of all nations, it's not an elective for you when you get to grad school Christianity. This is for us now. And I would argue that it's the only sane response that a person can have to the extravagant grace and love that's been poured out on our lives And so our mission, God's mission, and our involvement in it starts with recognizing that you and all of your shortcomings and all of your weaknesses and your busyness, that you are the object of a love that is so beyond your capacity to measure and dream about. And so then as you realize that, the only response that you can have is a passionate one. I heard a wise man say a long time ago that the reason that the Dead Sea in Israel is dead is because things flow into it and nothing ever flows out of it. And I've seen so many times in my own life and in other people's lives that when I feel dead spiritually, when I feel stuck spiritually, it's because God's grace and truth are flowing into me in good ways, but nothing's coming out for whatever reason in that season of my life. Maybe because of fear, maybe because of self-contempt, maybe because I see all the barriers. But in Romans 1.14, Paul says, I'm a debtor to the Jews and to the Greeks. I'm a debtor to grace because I've received the gospel. I'm in debt. And so the question is, do I live my life as though I'm a debtor or as though I'm the Dead Sea? That's what verse one is teaching us, that our, our hands are to be open to God You realize that when we do the doxology and we do the benediction, that's why we do it with two hands. One hand is signaling, I am receiving God's blessing. I want to be open to receiving God's blessing. And the other hand signifying, and at the same time, flow through me. I want to bless the world around me. So help me to be open to that, to give and to receive. He supplies the power. We just open our hands to give and to receive. Secondly, The strategy for mission. If our hands are to be open to God and our lives are going to be available to others, then how is God going to begin to infiltrate the world around us? And here's where we see his strategy. Now, his strategy is so simple. I mean, honestly, like we could bring in one of the kids in the nursery and read this passage to them, and they would be able to tell us exactly what we're supposed to do next. 
It's right there. It's so clear. It's so easy. Here's what he says. What you have heard from me, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, you turn around and give it to reliable men, and then they will give it to others. So if you go to the next slide, there's four generations of disciple making. In other words, Timothy, you are not to take the leadership baton and just start a nice worship service on Sundays. Start a well-organized church service. But instead, you are to make disciples, to take the reality and the hope and the truth of Christianity, to find a few other people, to entrust it to them so that they could then go do the same with others. Now, here's what I know about me. It is a long way from my head, what I know to be true, and my heart, what I accept to be true, and my hands, the way that I actually live. And so our application is simply the first thing that has to happen to accomplish this strategy is get discipled. You have to get discipled. I have to get discipled, and you have to get discipled. The things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. And so the observation is simply, Timothy has put himself in a position to hear, right? Have you? Have you put yourself in a position to hear and to see modeled before you the grace of the gospel? Paul was not an easy person to follow around. Think about all the time that Timothy would have had to to schedule and the effort that he would have had to make to get around a guy like Paul. Paul went to some of the hardest places in the world. He did some of the most difficult things you can imagine for the gospel. But Timothy made a decision to follow Paul around as much as he could so that he could be influenced by Paul. He made a decision to open up his heart to Paul, to be confronted by Paul, to be loved by Paul. And it is always a risky decision to open up your heart to someone else. But to Timothy, I think it was a no-brainer. It's like, look at this guy. Look at the grace in his life. I need this. I need to grow. And so here's my question. Who's influencing you? Who's influencing you? I'm guessing it's probably a lot of people. A lot of ideas. Is it Hollywood? Is Hollywood influencing you? Political figures? Is it ad agencies? The American dream? Is it songwriters, some ideal of success? Is it uh, some voice in your past that you can't get away from? Who is influencing you? Based on Jesus' words, the question is, have you made yourself, have you put yourself in a position to be influenced and invested in by someone who is committed to seeing God's mission accomplished in and through your life and in the world? Have you ever thought about not just what Jesus did for us, life, death, resurrection, but have you thought about what he was actually doing for those three years of ministry? He picked 12 guys. That's so remarkably small. Think big, start small, go deep. He spent three years with 12 guys. And basically he said, now what I've given to you, go and do it with others. That's what Paul said to Timothy, you know, and I'll never tire of sharing how all this started for me. Four score and 20 pounds ago, (laughs) I was at Georgia Southern as a freshman in college, and there was a 5'8 
135 pound black kid from Griffin, Georgia, who uh, was the lone Jesus warrior in my fraternity. And um, he went to the parties, but he didn't drink. He dated, but he didn't hook up. He studied hard, but he made bad grades. And, um, and you know, he, he came to our intramural games, but he wasn't a good athlete. And so all of what I saw to be weakness in his life, actually, he had this incredible confidence and joy and stability in who he was in Christ. You have that picture? This is a picture from my wedding day. You can see Vex is right in the middle. His name is Vex Miller. And he probably more than anybody else in my life up until that point in time invited me into a process where he said, hey, I want to spend some time with you, invite you into a Bible study. And though all the walls were up and I really didn't have very much interest in God at that point in time in my life, he said, I want to show you how to study the Bible. I'm going to show you how to pray. I'm going to show you how you can communicate your faith to other people. I'm going to teach you to memorize scripture. And he didn't just teach me, tell me how to do those things. He modeled it before me. He was with me. And and in spite of, and plus, along with all those things, he actually did life with me. It was crazy, the kind of things that Vex would do. If uh, I needed a ride, he drove me to church. He said, hey, you know, you live in the dorm. You're a freshman. Come over to my apartment and wash your clothes. If there's extra food, you can eat with me. I can remember when I came down with the flu my freshman year in college, my best friend and roommate from high school said, I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't want to get sick. I'm going to stay with my girlfriend for a couple days. But Vex came into the dorm, this fraternity brother of mine, and he picked up my dirty laundry. He took it to his apartment, washed it, folded it, and brought it back with medicine and Gatorade and soup. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said, I'm a debtor to grace. And and this is how he spent his life. I've been all that I've been forgiven of, all that Christ has given me. And so when he graduated, and I was a sophomore, it was after my sophomore year, he was taking a job uh, with Warner Brothers uh, as a CPA in Los Angeles. I'm like, what am I gonna do? Don't leave. Where are you going? And he said, you're good. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? He said, you pass it on. Find, find one or two guys in the fraternity. Do you realize how much God must love our fraternity? You're here now. I'm like, me? It's like, just go, go do what I did with them. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And that's what Jesus is saying to the 11 disciples. This is the strategy. It's always been the strategy for cultural transformation. Think big. Start small. Go deep. The kingdom of light pushes back the darkness. How? As lives are changed and influenced by the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus' strategy for that to happen is within the context of committed, intentionally missional, interdependent relationships. And so the question is, what's the next step for you along that pathway? Step one is you get discipled. Step, step two is you disciple others. Paul says to Timothy, I'm taking this message, I'm giving it to you, you go find somebody else, find faithful people, not perfect people, but reliable people. And so the primary qualification for changing the world is that you know Jesus and are open to his grace changing you and flowing through you to other people. Because the gospel is not for private consumption, it's to be given away. Now you think about uh, my favorite um, event in the Summer Olympics 
is the four by 100 relay. This is where every person in the race is incredibly fast and they run 100, 100 meters as fast as they can. And they hand off a baton. And this is an incredibly brutal display of strength and this symphony of motion and connection. It's amazing when a team is doing it so well. 100 meters as fast as can, here's a baton. Next guy takes 100 meters, here's a baton. Passing it, one person to the next. Why don't you just imagine that you're watching that event, okay? First guy passes, runs 100 meters. Second person passes 100 meters, takes the baton. Third, they get all the way to the end of the race, and that, that baton is being extended. All that training, all the hard work is extended to the fourth person in the relay, and we see them on TV looking at their phone, playing Candy Crush, watching reality TV, surfing through Instagram. The team would be like, what are you doing? We've been training. This is our mission. This is what we were made for. This is why we are here. What are you doing? And so I, I know I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here as I say that, but you can see the reality of it, that we <laughs> take the hands off the wheel of a heart that's misaligned and we drift. And so I just want to remind you that the mission that God has called us to is so great and so good. There's nothing that you could give yourself more worthy than this. Get discipled. Spend the time to disciple others. Because we can take this message. When we are gripped by God's grace, we have the opportunity to see his life and grace move through us. Here's the principle. You don't get the Christian life until you start giving it away. You might get it on some level, but I promise you that you will get to a point where that knowledge will just deaden you unless you begin to give it away. Gosh, that's so true in my life when I'm not doing that. And so how can you be praying right now? God, who can I influence? Who can influence me? And give your time and schedule to help someone get to a place where they can give the gospel away to someone else. All right, last one, cost of mission. What's the cost of mission? We're gonna fly through this. We see the cost of the mission in these three metaphors or analogies that Paul gives us, verses three through five. He says, first, you gotta avoid distraction. Verses three through four, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. There it is. Don't get distracted. Distracted. He wants to please his commanding officer. And so we hear these things. Know God. Grow together. Reach our world. Think big. Start small. Go deep. It seems so easy. It seems so simple. Yes, we start off. We're ready to go. And then we get this sudden case of spiritual ADD. And we start to dabble in all these really good things. And I think oftentimes the enemy uses a really, really good thing. He doesn't use the worst thing, but the enemy of the best is oftentimes a really good thing. And so I would just say, when you think about your life and what you're choosing to do in the church, and the church is filled with so many good things, so many good things, but if you're choosing to do the things that you're doing to avoid going deep in relationships with others, where you can develop and equip them, then I think we're just dabbling instead of diving in. Don't get distracted. Do all the good things. Do them with other people. Disobedience is number two. 
Disobedience, verse 5. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. You know, there's nothing more nauseating in the church than hypocrisy. Nothing more attractive, though, than sincerity. And so where, where are the people, where are people going to have the opportunity to see the strength of God's grace up front and working itself out in real tangible ways? I'm going to tell you, it's as you come into people's lives and as they come into my life and they see me repenting and confessing and needing God's grace for my failures in my marriage, in my parenting, and in my sin. And as I bring that before the Lord with other people, they begin to see hope and joy and life for themselves as well. So this has got to be done in the context of relationships. Lastly, discipline. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Discipline. You know, here's the reality. We really only grow and flourish in God's kingdom as spiritually mature believers when we lose ourselves. So what Andrew talked about last week, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You realize that the most radically influential person to have ever walked planet Earth changed the world through humility and servanthood and loss. Though he was powerful, he became weak. Though he was first, he chose to be last. And though he was innocent, he made himself guilty. He took our guilt upon himself. And he did it for the joy set before him. This is life on mission. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross. And this is one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes about that verse. Here's what it says. Hebrews 12 is not suggesting the cross was a joy. It's saying that because Jesus went into mission, he experienced tremendous joy and tremendous suffering. That's true across the board, isn't it? If you live for the furtherance of your own interests, your social interests, your economic interests, your personal interests, if you live for your own comfort, if you live for your own needs, your own freedom, then guess what? You will have a cozy little life, but you will have very little in the way of fullness of joy very little in the way of danger and very little in the way of suffering. But if you want a big life, if you want a full life, if you want real living, get into mission. It's true for Jesus. It's true for everyone. Let's pray. God, I pray for your church, the bride, that in the midst of a very distracted world, you would help us to see again the joy set before us in following you into mission. The reality of making disciples is hard, and there's a lot of barriers, time and schedule and busyness, and we feel so unprepared. But what else would we spend our time doing? Investing in, being invested by others. So I pray that you would raise again uh, this great calling for your people here at King's Chapel. 
that we would prioritize our life around the Great Commission, that you would see that it's as simple as finding one or two other people to begin investing in. And if we're not ready to do that, then help us to make time and space in our schedules to be influenced and invested in. So, Lord, this is your work. It's not my work. It's not Andrew's work. It's not any one person's work here. It's all of ours. And I pray that we would embrace it out of the power and the grace that we have in Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.